is the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Okay, hello all you wonderful, wonderful rock fans around the world. And welcome to this episode, can you believe, number 33 of the Enter Sad Men Podcast. As you already know, we're the only podcast that reviews and rates and ranks rock's greatest albums, uh, great, great, great albums in this wonderful broad church of ours to create the absolute definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. You know where we are. We're on entersadmen.co.uk. We're on wherever you get your podcasts and Twitter and Facebook and all that malarkey. Uh, And it's me, Richard, with Mark and Steve, as usual. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, mate. You all right? Very good. Yeah. Lovely to be here again. And uh, here we are with this episode 33. We get to one album off the top 100. So really, really exciting. Um, And uh, we spun our tombola, uh, Tico Torres' tombola of topics and themes. And he spat out uh, the ball, which meant we had to go and search for concept albums. So this uh, episode, which we are calling On a Storyteller's Night, uh, I believe we've picked uh, three albums that certainly will expand this broad church even further. And uh, I believe I'm starting, as, as we usually do with these shows in chronological order. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm stuck in the 80s again this week. And uh, I've gone for the German outfit Halloween and their second album, The Keeper of the Seven Keys. So next, I believe, Mark, is you and your choice, if you could enlighten the listeners. Yes, I've crawled zombie-like into the 1990s, uh, just, just into the 1990s, with a little band from the northeast of England who were quite a big deal in their day, not always for the right reasons, but who have become very difficult to track any information down, really, about um, in the intervening sort of 30-odd years. And um, I went for Warfare's 1990 CD, Hammer Horror, a tribute to the house, to the studio that dripped blood. So that was my contribution, which I know you'll have loved. I'm absolutely convinced you'll have loved. (laughs) Steve, what about you? It's such it's such a short word, isn't it? Concept. It should be a really it should be a really easy. When that came out of Tico's tombola last week, you just think, yeah, this will be fine. And then the three of us toddle off and choose what we think we're going to do, and then the WhatsApp conversation start. It's all smiles on faces and all cheeriness, and we're going to look forward to doing what we're doing. And there was a kind of thought process with these three that have we overstepped the mark this time? <laughs> It's um, I mean, normal. Normal's out. Normal's out of town. This is this has just been a crazy, crazy week. And I'm looking at you, Mark. This has been a crazy, crazy week. And um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I brought I brought some sanity to proceedings. I've um, <laughs> I have promise you. And I'm uh, and I'm in 1995, the back end of our parameters. And I have chosen for this episode, Fear Factor is demanufacture. Your life will be 
album is 1987 um, which is when Halloween's Keeper of the Seven Keys part one came out and this is the one that uh, Richard's brought to the party so talk us through it my friend opening album sleeve notes yes as you say uh, May 87 it was uh, it was released and uh, it, it was originally planned to be part of a two-parter um, a, a, sorry, a two-part, a part of a double album uh, with obviously Keeper of the Seven Keys Part Two that was re- re- released as a separate single album a year later. Why did they do that? Because the uh, their their record label felt that a double album was a bit extreme and too radical at the time. I don't quite know where they got that idea from, but they wanted to, it released as two separate albums. So this was Part One. Halloween. So from Germany. Uh, this was their second studio album, and it was recorded uh, between November 86, January 87, released on the Noise label, a couple of seconds under 37 minutes in length, produced by two Tommies, Newton and Hansen, uh, recorded at Horace Sound Studio in Hanover in Germany. Personnel, uh, so the newly arrived Michael Kiska was on vocals, uh, taking vocal duties uh, over from Kai Hansen uh, on uh, guitar, who uh, decided that he couldn't play guitar and sing too well at the same time. Michael Wykath on guitar as well. Marcus Gross- Grosskopf on bass. And Ingo Schwingtenberg. Uh, apologies if I haven't pronounced that right. Uh, so Ingo is on drums. Uh, chart-wise, didn't do much in the UK. It uh, reached, um, you know, the, the, the heady heights of uh, number 104 in the Billboard uh, 200, so uh, not bad. Obviously, part two did a lot better because I think this really did uh, catapult Halloween into people's consciousness, certainly in the UK, with the help of dear old Tommy Vance and the and the Friday Rock Show. In terms of the tracks, uh, what we'll be reviewing tonight, uh, there are eight of them. So track one is Initiation, two, I'm Alive, three, A Little Time, four is Twilight of the Gods, uh, five is A Tale That Wasn't Right, that's all side one. And then flipping that over, just three tracks on side two, which are Future World, Halloween, not Halloween, Halloween, number seven, and uh, track eight was Follow the Sign. Yeah, why did I pick this? I... I did think about Halloween when we did our Broxit episode all that time ago, um, but felt that 
I couldn't go for another German band after Steve had chosen Dear Old Accept. So I, I decided I'd go for something that Mark hated. Uh, this time, um, I, I went back to it uh, for the story uh, that it tells. And, um, yeah, I'm interested <laughs> uh, in how you both got on with it, guys. So c- can I start off by asking a question, which is, what is the story? <laughs> no, and, and good question, because I've been unable to find it either. <laughs> Priceless. So the first concept album falls at the first. <laughs> I'm not sure any of them really meet the brief, do they? Well, that's the kind of crazy areas. <laughs> well, no, no, I, I, think, I think yours does, Mark, because the concept is about, I mean, I think it's about a story or a theme. And yours certainly has got that. It's based, it's based around that. Um, Steve's will come on to, but um, allegedly it has a uh, a concept. Much as I've I've researched it, and have you guys too as well, because because I I've not been able to find something that cohere. Lots of opinions, but nothing that actually coherently says that. I mean, the specific specific story beyond a gentleman's journey in some parallel or far away Lord of the Rings potential, maybe slightly dystopian, who knows, world. So there's a story in there about a central character, I believe, and their experiences. But beyond that, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it. Yeah, if you open The Land Lies Down on Broadway, you've got the story. They've written the story out. It's there in text form, and then you can kind of place the, the songs and the music in, in the various parts none of these albums do that and like you i i, I kind of the, the closest i got to finding out what the band actually intended as the story was that it is about some sort of fantasy world and a journey through i, I kind of got the impression that it was a it was a sort of a a journey into a promised land that's that's kind of as far as i got with it so i don't know I don't know what the story is. So anyway, yeah. I, I just I just wondered whether you'd managed to get no, down. No, I've, I've done I've done a, done a ton of ton of digging. What was interesting was there were as many column inches devoted to what it could be about, like the internal arguments within the band, uh, and 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 some some of those those sort of forces and and, uh, and tensions, rather than <laughs> what the story was about. To answer your original question, I have to say that you, you, you described it in the intro or described the, everything as a, a broad church. I kind of felt like I'd been sacrificed at the altar this week because I'd, I'd kind of, um, I've tried this album, I've tried to listen to this album many, many times in the past and I've never got beyond the first track and I've never got beyond the first track because I don't like the first track and my, my opinion of that hasn't changed at all. So, you know, just, just, you know, spoiler alert. But because this process forced me to go beyond that and listen to it all, I'm, I'm not saying this is ever going to be in my top 20 favourite albums. It's a long way short of that. But I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed, there, there are bits of it I enjoyed less. There are bits of it that I really enjoyed. I think we're going to have an interesting conversation about um, about uh, Kiska because he's got a voice that you kind of feel like you've heard somewhere before and and sometimes the sound is a bit Queensryche sometimes it's a bit Iron Maiden-y um, but I actually quite enjoyed the album I have to say uh, you know I, it's not a bad album it's certainly it, it forced me to confront my prejudices so that's that's a good thing mm. if you're going to pick holes in vocalists in this episode and starting with Michael Kiska it's going to be a long fucking night isn't it given what's to come 
<laughs> to be honest, with my choice, I'm not really describing them as a vocalist. No. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. yeah. What is it with the Germans and fun metal? I really enjoyed this. I really did. I do remember, like, I remember buying it and I bought it. And I, I'm pretty sure I bought it only because I was going to Donington in 88. And therefore, I research purposes only. But if you remember the Donington 88, that bill, they were a long way down the thought process list of, of, of bands you were bothered about that day. I mean, it was a sensational bill. It went horribly wrong for many, many reasons. But it was a great bill, wasn't it? So I bought it. I would have played it a couple of times and then wouldn't have bothered playing it again, I don't think. And if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, I don't honestly remember ever picking it up since then. Um, I'm not new now. I've only got it on vinyl. I've never got it on CD, put it that way. So so I've given it a few spins this week, obviously. And I just and I, and I go back to what I said. What is it with Germans and fun metal? I've really, really enjoyed myself. It's been a blast, you know, a combination of some, well, I think some seriously good metal and a few side-splitting moments thrown in. I mean, it's to, to that end, it sort of fills the concept kind of um, yardstick in as much as, you know, there's a lot of nonsense going on there. And that's so if it's shit, or we'll call it a concept album, any of the pad bits, it's kind of like some of it's been sort of bad Steve, but best, slightly better. But the, the, the one thing I did, the one thing I did object to was Wikipedia. Yeah, again, objecting to something on Wikipedia. They called it the considered the album that created the genre of European-style yeah. power metal. I mean, what? they've forgotten Merciful Fate, amongst others, um, except Scorpions, for Christ's sake. I don't know. But anyway, I've, I've, I've enjoyed revisiting it. And it's um, like any good concept album should be. It's flawed galore, but it's um, been good fun. Really good fun. Just on, on that note, because I bought this album because we were going to Donington. Mm. And the biggest irony of all, of course, was that as jobbing hacks at the time, we got backstage passes. Where were we during Halloween's? I know. Set? I know. It wasn't out the front. It wasn't, it wasn't out the front. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing about yeah, the, the 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 founding album for European power metal. I mean, I can I certainly get their influence on. If you take I don't know to take Hammerfall, who I just think are you know more, more modern you know power metal band. Um, Certainly, that specific style you can see going back to to this album, and again, I guess not only the the, the style of the music, but also that sort of the the the, the, the far away land, mm. you know, Lord of the Rings, monsters and demons, all that kind of stuff. So within that sort of specific um, European, non UK, <laughs> Lord of the Rings type hard metal. Yeah. Maybe we did. I don't know. That's a very, very specific genre you've just given us there. <laughs> and also, and anyway, I would say Crocus were doing that with their first couple of albums. So, Keeper of the 70s, part one, uh, begins with a short ditty called uh, Initiation. Some nice quiet start, then some big, big chords, quite orchestral in a way, which actually reminded me of the chords at the start of an album we reviewed a long, long time ago, which was at the beginning of Time to Kill by Overkill. Yeah, initiation doesn't last long and goes straight in. I mean, essentially, it's the beginning to uh, the track that Mark couldn't get past, he mentioned earlier, which is I'm Alive, which I'm amazed at, actually. It'd be fascinating to hear why, because I, I think it's a great start to this album. 
I mean, they, they present it all, don't they? Into the fast chugging riff. Um, and Kiska says, okay, this is how I can sing. Yeah, and they're off. I think it's a really good start. Steve, we'll do you next, and then let's see what Mark thinks. Well, Mark, like me, will be well aware that this was their Donington closer back in 1988. And I have to say, knowing that now, it seems perfectly logical because it's got a proper sing-along, send-off feel to it. It would make a very good album closer as well as an opener. Um, yeah, no, I think it, I think it rocks along. My, my initial, my, the, the initial thought I had about it, I do like it, by the way. It seems to be about a dozen different Iron Maiden covers going on in this song, and he does sound like Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> There's no two ways about it, and that's not a bad thing. If you're going to copy anyone, where do I start? <laughs> Just, it's too fast. I find it quite a challenge listening to him because he feels like he's struggling to keep up. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just a legacy of that 1987 experience or 88 experience for me. I just thought, oh, no, this is not what I want to listen to. And there's nothing inherently wrong with it. I completely understand why you think it's a great start to the album. And uh, I think maybe on a you know, different album or different band, maybe I'd feel the same way. I think if this was at the end of the album, I'd have more time for it than perhaps at the beginning. Maybe that's... Maybe that's the answer. Maybe, as, as Steve says, if it was the album Closer, I think you've kind of ramped up to that. This seems like a very, very quick way to start an album. And <laughs> and it almost seems like a Christmas song as well. <laughs> the best bit of this track is there's there's about five different guitar solos within about 30 seconds. They're all different. It's just little sort of snapshot guitar solos over with this lightning drum beat that's going on. I think it's, yeah. it's about fun. And I turned out I was wrong. Yeah. yeah. This is quite slow. I mean, it's three minutes long. It packs a hell of a lot into three minutes. Okay, well, we move on to uh, track three after I'm Alive, where they slow it down a little for a little time. I mean, it's another chugging riff. I mean, they, they, those Iron Maiden chug-type riffs are abundant through this whole album, aren't they? And this is the point at which I buy into the whole thing. You know, I really like this track, and it's there's quite a lot going on in it. It's Iron Maiden that they're possibly most melodic, you know, if we're going to compare it to them. And, you know, it's got quite a nice hook line. It kind of grabs you. I, I really like this track. really like this track, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to we're not going to stop the Iron Maiden comparisons. There's plenty more to come. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the drum beats are still up there, but it's um they've definitely come off the throttle a bit, haven't they? And it's um but it does still chug along. It's a uh, but again, at the end, there's some crazy alarm clock going off and some clock noises and, um, oh, you know, what it's called a little time, eh? Clever. Um, and I, it's just, yeah, there's plenty of nonsense again. But that's after I've enjoyed the track, you know, yeah. which I, have. I think it's good. It's a nice one. Yeah. What I lo- really like about this track as well is the little guitar motifs. Funnily enough, it's a device that's used on two albums that immediately sprung to mind, which was... Um, Heartbreak by Paul Stabu. He uses that um, oh. kind of little moth motif on yeah. Angeli. Yeah. And, and and the other one is um, Gary Moore uses it twice, once on Gonna Break My Heart Again on Corridors of Power and once on Shapes of Things on Victims of the Future. And I absolutely love it because I think it really picks out the riff. It really kind of just, it just almost like a little signpost to say there's something really special going on at the moment. And there is. I really, really like that. But the dual guitars work really well 
throughout this album, don't they? I mean, they, they really have thought about the guitar part, so they're not overcrowded. I, f- I never felt they were, they were, you know, on top of each other. They, they worked really well together. Kiska's dual vocals on this uh, um, made me smile. But as you, as you said, Steve, this, this sort of the, the, the clocks about sort of two thirds of the way through. I mean, it really was a it, it's a it's a pound shop version of Pink Floyd's Time, yes. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've called it a little time. We're going to have a clock. Yeah. So, <laughs> track four is uh, Twilight of the Gods. I mean, I, I, I'm talking about Ingve, bit of a tribute to Ingve at the beginning. Some really Ingve whittling, isn't it? I mean. <laughs> This makes me grin. It is a bit comical. It's got another maiden gallop. But, I mean, it's, it's a few bits and pieces about this I like. I like the, the choral pieces in, uh, throughout. But uh, for me personally, a little step down after uh, a little time. It's another where, where Kiska is being dragged along by the song rather than driving it himself, you know. Um, if it, I, 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 I kind of get this mental image of him on on a runaway horse that he's he can't quite get under control. Lyrics written by Ronnie, surely this bollocks. It's utter bollocks. <laughs> yeah, it's a. I love this track. It's a bit insania. One oh, what the fuck is insania? What, what does that even mean? Well, um, now I had a thought about that. Isn't is insania the land that they're in? Shaka. <laughs> Well, it could, yeah. If you're even thinking about it, <laughs> I just, I just, what? It must be because surely every country has IA at the end of it, doesn't it? Albania, Estonia. Do they have Insania? Yeah, 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 yeah. True, yeah. And they're in the postal code of Insania one hundred and four, and then later they move to Insania one hundred and sixteen. I get it. I get it. I get it. That's right. Yeah. Quick trip round the block. I think this is price. I think it's a right old thunder. And also, um, I, I, I thought we'd mention him because it's probably the only time I'll ever get his name checked on this program. Um, Marcus Grosskopf on bass. Take a bow. He's dancing all over that fretboard on this thing. And yeah, I think it's a brilliant song. I really like it. And uh, Twilight of the Gods gives way to the obligatory slower song uh, on uh, this album. And uh, that is A Tale That Wasn't Right. Um, starts with a nice sort of light, almost Scorpions-esque ballad guitar and a harpsichord, because obviously we're in a faraway land, don't forget. This wouldn't by any chance be at the end of side one, would it? <laughs> well. Funny I should say that. And it was it was an album deliberately structured in terms of that the side one as a group of songs and then the, the side two, yeah. I, I really like this, but but again, I just Uncle Kiska is just kind of right at the edge of his range again, and you just think uh, in the in the quieter moments of this song, I think it's really nice. I think it's a lovely song, um, and I think it's got quite a nice sentiment to it. I'm not entirely sure who he's talking about in this, his dear old friend, but um, but I really like it. But then it all kind of takes off a bit, and and he. He doesn't quite manage, I think, to stay on top of the song again. So that that's my issue. And I think that's an issue for me that runs through the album. doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. I did. I really enjoyed the album. But mm. I think that there are issues around if he, if they'd narrowed the range a bit, I think this would have been a better yeah. local performance. I just say, I mean, the, the first verse 
I mean, really, it, it was it, 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 really nice when he's, as we so often do we say this, he wound it back. But then for most of the rest of the song, he's he's absolutely up there, isn't he? I think this is shocking. I think this is a right old dirge. I quite like Kiska's voice at the start. I think it's fine. I think it's quite a nice vocal. And yeah, that kind of Scorpions opening, that's, well, that's that's going to be fine always. Now he goes a bit. He goes a bit Rob Halford here without the um, without the skill set, and um, I just think it's a bit lame. If I'm honest, I'm getting nothing back from this track at all. I think it's really lame, cheesy lame. I mean, some say that you know, within the story within the story that the the, the 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 oblique references to friends and being let down are about those relationships within the band. I, I, mean, I don't know how true that is. Okay, right, well, let's start side two. And, um, well, for me, they go almost a bit punky um, with uh, this next track, which is called Future World. It's simpler than some of the stuff on uh, most of side one. Um, I think it's good fun. I mean, it made me laugh at times, some of the the industrial noises later on before he goes, ah! Um, so uh, yeah, um, yeah, made me smile. Good fun. It's nuts. It's just nuts. I love it. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Apparently, Judge Dredd inspired. Not quite. I am the law, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. Again, fun. How many times have I got to say the word fun? I've got, so I'm getting I'm getting some kind of Bavarian village knees up as a, as a sort of you know <laughs> backdrop to this. Um, I was thinking it has to be one of their live staples and having seen them i couldn't quite remember um but it's <laughs> it's, it's apparently their third most played song live according to set list and i absolutely get that this must be a massive great fun three or four minutes if you're a halloween fan highlight of the night but what's all that knobs and whistles and bloody baby about if that's what it is there's a kazoo in there somewhere and I get the feeling that the call and response bit, in, in French, this would be plus de fromage. In German, <laughs> it's feeling Kaiser. In English, it's a bit cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, Future World is followed by the 13-minute epic that is Halloween. We, we, we've talked a lot on this show this podcast about long songs, some of which uh, aren't long enough and some of which need to be a tenth of the length. This falls into the latter for me. Um, there's an edit if you if you get the extended, expanded version where this song's only five minutes long um, and it and it's, it's nearly too long for that, <laughs> let alone 13 of them. It gallops along again at the beginning, doesn't it? And um, I mean, lots of, lots more R's. And there's some, there's some good breaks. I, again, I quite like the orchestration the bits, orchestration bits on it. And I mean, whilst the, it's broken up, that the main riff is just very. I mean, it's there all the time throughout, and, and quite, quite repetitive. I really like it. I, it's it, it could have done with ending at probably the four and a half minute mark, mm. but I really quite enjoy it. There was one point where I thought, Jesus Christ, is this still the same song? But that was right at the beginning. Um, I haven't felt the need to lift the needle mm. on the 13 and a half minutes particularly, though. I think it's, it's well-constructed, great riff. 
he's I think it's a really good vocal performance. So yeah, it's all right. Well, like the pair of you, I, I love the opening. I, there's all sorts going on. I thought I love the pace and I love the choral work, the pre-chorus, the bass guitar again. But I'm just thinking, how the fuck do they make this last 13 minutes? After about four minutes, where the first kind of change comes, I'm thinking, yeah, what treats lie in store? And unfortunately, the treats kind of drop off. Because it is a great track. Those first four minutes, great track. And I can't help but think of, given the Maiden comparisons, I'm sure they're modelling themselves. And I just think Rhyme with the Ancient Mariner. I just think you've tried too hard to make a long song. And it's just not worked. It's just not worked. If it is the concept album, is this a kind of mini operatic end to something? Is it just big and grand and so different? And I just think they kind of lost direction somewhere during this. Well, quite in quite a few places during this. It's a shame that it ends this way. Okay, and uh, the album signs off with, I guess, a little coda, doesn't it? In uh, follow the sign, um, less than a couple of minutes, and uh, this was really the teaser, the the link into the second part of Keeper of the Seven Keys. Wait, I mean, it, it's fine. I don't think we'll necessarily be scoring it as a track. Nice little way to end an album. Let's um, have some highs and lows for Keeper of the Seven Keys Part One. Mark. So my high is a little time and my low is well it's i'm alive it's very it's very close between that and a tale that wasn't right but yeah i didn't dislike i'm alive i just it's an average track and it's it's of the 10 it's at the oh, sorry of the eight it's at the bottom of my list yeah okay um so by my scoring system um where five is average six is above average seven is good eight is very good Nine is outstanding and ten is out of this world. All points in between. Um, I've got a couple of eights, um, and I can't really separate Twilight of the Gods and Future World. I just think they're, I just think they're great fun. <laughs> and my average, which is a five and a half, is a tale that wasn't right. Yeah, and I'm with you, Steve, on a tale that wasn't right as my low, and can't get enough of how much they packed into I'm Alive because. <laughs> Just think it's hilarious. So I'm going to give that my top marks. So there we go. Uh, that's uh, our first of our concept albums, uh, Keeper of the Seven Keys by Halloween. And we're going to jump three years uh, into the future, um, well, at least as far as album release dates go. I'm not quite sure how many years into the past we're going. And uh, we hand over to Mark, who's... Uh, going to tell us about the great British horror film industry. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, yeah, so we arrive in 1990 and uh, a gentleman by the name of Paul Evans, known better known to his fans as Evo um, and the leading light founder and muse of the, uh, well, I don't know how to describe them, punk band, thrash metal band, Shock band, I don't know, Warfare. Warfare, founded in Shildon in the northeast, a little mining town in the northeast of England. Um, back in the day, they built a reputation for being foul-mouthed, outrageous behaviour. The albums that preceded this were absolutely indecipherable. I only own one other Warfare album, which is Mayhem Fucking Mayhem, and it is unlistenable. It is absolutely unlistenable. So when um, Hammer Horror 
released in 1990, dropped into my lap um, for to, re- to, to review for the newspaper I was working on, I thought, well, God, I'll put that to one side. And I think it was a, it was a little while before I listened to it. And first of all, I started, when I first started playing it, I started laughing. And then, um, actually, I have, I have a huge amount of affection for this because I think it's a band that went and did something very differently. It Musically, we will have the conversation about ineptitude, I have no doubt. We will certainly have a conversation about vocal performance. Of that, I have absolutely no doubt. But I really like this album because it makes me smile and I think it's just different enough to be interesting. So this is Warfare. Hammer Horror, released October 1990, recorded earlier that year and released through the Revolver label. It comes in at a very, very um, concise 32 and a half minutes. Uh, It was actually re-recorded a year later because the band wasn't happy with the mix, but the producer on this particular version that we're reviewing, which is the the original 1990 release, was a guy called Kevin Ridley. Uh, It was recorded in a studio, I think a Liberty studio in the northeast of England, but uh, to be honest, finding out anything about this band is quite hard. The personnel at the time were, uh, and none of them used their real names. So, you know, the comedy starts here, boys. The personnel, Evo on drums and lead speaking, Gunner, all guitars, Laser on keyboards, and Slaughter on bass. <laughs> I can barely keep the bass yeah. talking about it. Not, not to be confused with Slaughter, who's been on many other albums. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Oddly enough, uh, it didn't chart either in the UK or in America. Um, And album sales, I can't find a specific number. I'm guessing not many. So it was only ever released on CD. It wasn't released as a, well, I'm sure it's available on vinyl somewhere, but it was was originally released on CD. It runs to 10 tracks. Several of them are little vignettes of a minute, minute and a half, under two minutes. Um, There are one, two, three, four... Five, six proper, what I would call proper songs on here. So it does, one of the highlights of this album for me is a an operatic moment in the middle of Phantom of the Opera um, with a vocal which will have you on the floor, uh, which was performed by a young woman called Irene Hume. And we'll get to that as well. The only really interesting bit of trivia that I found about Warfare is that their debut album, was produced by Lemmy. So, boys, I've been dying all week to know what you think, because this album, I'll tell you now, this album is my guilty pleasure. I absolutely adore it. I I understand and accept all of the things that are wrong with it. I understand that musically it is like watching a very slow car crash. How did you get on? Wow, I mean, where to start? I've got four, four things to say. First of all, we do we do a crib sheet so that we've got a lot of sort of pace notes so that we can see what's going on. And the least surprising fact on your crib sheet is highest UK chart position, DNC. You know, I mean, this would this would never have charted anywhere, would it? Secondly, the only reference I can find to this band on Wikipedia is in German. So I've had to translate that. I mean, th- they are so anonymous by any other measure. Thirdly, if you take the Z off of slaughter, that's what we're left with here. And also, if you the anagram of Evo, Gunner, Laser, and Slaughter, you can make an anagram of it, which is this is fucking awful. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, 
I, I use the I use the word fun a lot in in keeping the seven keys because it was generally fun. This is more just kind of despair. <laughs> I've, I've not I've not got into it in quite the same. And your guilty pleasure, I absolutely get it. Well, I don't get it. I, I generally don't get it. There are some. There's a couple. Interestingly, there's a couple of good tracks later on, and I didn't see them coming because I'm I'm pretty. I was pretty fatigued by the time I got to them. So I don't get it. I don't pretend to get it, and I'm not massively enamoured with it. It took me a while. Um, I did uh, I did uh, exchange messages with Mark when we chose our albums and said uh, that it's uh, he, he spelt concept N-O-V-E-L-T-Y. But there was a point in time this week, after a day or so of uh, my head hurting, that, that as I said, I, I, I stuck my tongue in my cheek and just let myself be overcome by all three of these and then really started to enjoy it. And heaven forbid, uh, even... Even this, it does fall into that category at times that it's so bad it's good, but there are other times where it's just bad. Yeah. But no, I think in terms of the things we are, we need to consider as part of this, which must now be the most broad set of uh, metal and hard rock ever brought into one chart. Um, and we've not even reached 100 albums yet. So um, that you have certainly thought about it. Whatever their musical or vocal ability, they really have studied their subject. Mm. And they have tried to reproduce in musical form some of the mood and the plots of the films. So I'll give them that. So I, And once I started to think about that and just watched, you know, Watched a little bit of Hammer Horror because I remember being scared by him. At, it was about mm. nine or ten o'clock on ITV, wasn't it? On a on a Thursday night or something. Then yeah, it um, it's been an adventure and it has been fun. I mean, it's very difficult to be serious about this album on any sort of level. But if there is one serious bit, it is that Paul Evans Evo was a massive fan of the Hammer Horror Studio, a massive fan of the films that. It kicked out, and this truly is his tribute to the to the studio and to the to the films they released. And um, yeah, I think you can hear that in the in in the the lyrics in the I, I, I can't really call it <laughs> an album of songs, but in 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 this collection of material, I think you can hear his passion, and that's why that's partly why I chose it. Partly it was just to be contrary and mischievous, but also it was it was really because. I think they do something really different that you don't hear the anybody else do. But well, listen to it now, and you can just rip it to bits or whatever. So this is um, Hammer Horror by Warfare, and it's a it's a as I said, it's a a little trip through the some of the highlights of the studio and the uh, films that it released. And it starts off with a track. It's an instrumental track that is um, titled Hammer Horror. Uh, so it's, I suppose you might consider this to be the overture. It's all very atmospheric, lots of sound effects, you know, thunder, lightning, keyboards, you know, pretty much what a Hammer House of Horror film soundtrack might start off with. And it's quite orchestral um, at this point, isn't it? Yeah, I was amazed at the start. 
Yeah, very atmospheric. So I mean, if they if they wrote this, they could write music. Steve. Now, to be fair, I thought much the same. And then because you brought this to the party, because you brought this album for this episode, I'm thinking, right, so there's got to be a metal element somewhere down the line, you know, and so I'm waiting for Evo to start singing. And, um, and I, I had in my head, I'm going to get a metal voice, a rock voice, a voice of some sort that I'm going to be able to kind of, you know, be able to deal with rationally, you know, because I've seen the set list, I've seen, the, sorry, the um, the order of the songs, and I've seen the start of the YouTube video. So I know what I'm getting, you know, I'm pretty acute to the fact that we're going down a, a list of Hammer Horrors. And then his voice, that's just not what I expected at all. Just not, I listened to our Sad Men Christmas special, and while well, I'm looking at Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee's a little drummer boy, for example, and I was expecting something like that, you know, something dark and, and menacing and forbidding, or failing that, just something heavy. And we've not got it, have we? It's really interesting. It's um, and unfortunately, it doesn't get it doesn't get any better. His contributions to this. So the Hammer Horror Overture gives way to the Plague of the Zombies, which Steve has already alluded to. Um, and at this point, I'm not entirely sure whether they're a rock band or a punk band or a mod band. It's there's something. It's almost like a hybrid of all of those things. It's the sort of thing. And I think who was it? Was it you, Richie? Said not sure how far in the past it is. This to me is 1979. This is released in 1990, but it's about 12 years. 12 years earlier. I've I've got. I mean, I think this. This one's Plague of the Zombies, and and there's another one later on. I'll talk a bit more about, but that they, I could imagine when they made this album, were were they conscious that they really should try not ending up sounding like the Rocky Horror Picture Show? They came very close on Plague of the Zombies to sounding in terms of the songs out of the, the the Rocky Horror Show, and there's one later on where they they completely sound like it. But it's, you know, this uh, Plague of Zombies, I, I quite like the bass line. I like the backing vocals. Um, and I do like the Baker Street sax solo. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that sax lead. It reminds me of something, um, I'm thinking Super Tramp. I'm thinking the back end of Crime of the Century or something. But just going back to what you were saying earlier, Rich, I thought Hammer Horror, I mean, the first three letters, I'm thinking, I thought they'd really ham it up more. I thought they would go Rocky Horror. I thought if they're going to go down this route, let's just go bananas. And and, and I think there's a bit more restraint than I expected. And it's kind of a neither here nor there thing. But um, and the other thing is, I haven't got a fucking clue how to mark this thing. So you you've given me three. It's like a minute twenty one twelve, <laughs> a little three part overture. And I'm thinking, right, I'm lost. Let's move on to the, of the opera. <laughs> Well, we've, we've talked through another very short instrumental called Ballad of the Dead. Now we're into the the track that just sold me. The, the moment I heard this track, I'm like, I get this completely now. I'm there. I'm absolutely happy with this track. I'm, I'm sure that's not the case for you two, but I absolutely love Fans for the Opera. It is, uh, it's hard not to, to love it, I think. But you will disagree, I'm sure. Well, sorry, so when I say, you know, I talked about later... I didn't want to give it away. I meant next track. I mean, he this this is his attempt at Frank and Furter, isn't it? This is this is time warp. Uh, but it, it's <laughs> it yeah, it's funny. I mean, it, it's it's not great. 
But it, it's funny. I mean, the, 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 what was the what was the lady's name? You, you said what her name was? Irene Hume. It would have been hilarious to hear how they persuaded her to do this gig. But I mean, she's got a, a really good voice, but uh, obviously o- only serves when they're singing together to show that how badly out of tune Evo is. <laughs> Uh, do you know what? This week, every time I've listened to this album, we get to this track, and there's only one thing that I wanted out of this experience that I couldn't have, and that was to be in the same room at the point, as same room as Steve, at the point where she starts doing the aria in the middle of it, because I think you would have been on the floor. Nowhere else. Nowhere else, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's true. No, I, I just don't get this at all. There's... Well, I kind of do. To be fair, it's, there's, there's almost a, there's a hint of a tune in there, which is nothing to do with metal or rock at all. There's a kind of hint of almost like um, I thought a bit killing joke, a bit kind of new wave meets new romantic um, with that kind of layer of synth at the back. But no, the organ, the drums, Christina, whoever the fuck she is. Oh, it's just, it, I mean, it's supposed to be a joke, isn't it? <laughs> it's just. I, do you know what? I don't want to do him and his passion a disservice. No. This surely can't be serious. This 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 has to be a light-hearted tribute. It has to be. I kind of feel like it's in the same it's in the same spirit as the films themselves, which were very hammy and very sort of, you know, yeah. over the top. And this is, isn't it? This is over yeah. the top. Yeah. If he was that much an aficionado and uh, that much of a fan, yeah, he'd have got that. And, if, and actually, if he's trying to capture that in this, all jo- all the other problems with it aside that is this is a nice little riff running through this the operatic finish is absolutely bonkers i i laughed every time i put this on and the bit the, the huge drum rolls and the da and it's just it's, do you know what the best bit of this song is christina yeah sing for me right. yeah. can we can we just play it so that I can see Steve when it starts because that's just been that's been all I've been hoping for all week that's fine this is the last time this is the last time that's fine that's fine have your fun (laughs) (laughs) oh god Um, that's the oh (laughs) oh brilliant and it goes all a bit OMD at the end doesn't it yeah there's a lot of Oh, that in there, yeah. Okay, so um, Phantom of the Opera is succeeded by Baron Frankenstein. And it's very difficult, isn't it, to talk about what the worst parts of this album are. But I, I don't actually mind this. I think it's quite a nice little riff here. You, know, you put take aside the vocals. Um, it's not a bad little riff. Oh, this is probably the, is this the heaviest, most metal-like song in it. I was disappointed at the start because there's this really nice melodic guitar and I thought it does, just doesn't go on for long enough before the, the really big riff kicks in. But, I mean, I think, you know, when you, when you hear that main riff with the strings behind it, I mean, they were, you know, you can see where Metallica got the idea for s <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Lars had this on repeat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a great riff. Yeah, again, ruined by the vocals. But then I'm finding it hard to be critical. I'm finding it hard to be subjective because it's um, you know, I just listened to Phantom of the Opera again. It seems very different to the mark I gave it, having picked up things. I'm sure if I carried on listening to this, I'd pick up things again and again and again, over and again. It doesn't 
alter the fact that overall it's really unimpressive. But but within that, there's there's some there's some interesting stuff going on. You know, the riff in this is brilliant. Quite a nothing song, and again, you know, and hand on heart, no altering of my marks here. His vocals ruin it. Uh, I don't disagree. But then am I looking at the wrong thing? Am I why am I judging it as a song? Because it's not, is it? It's a piece of theatre. Well, I think that's I think that's where I got to quite quickly with this album back in 1990. That it's not an album in 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 the way that you would normally consider yeah. a piece of music. So, because as a piece of, I mean, I mean, let's be clear. You know, if you're planning on going out and finding this album on YouTube, the reality is you're going to get an album that is full of songs where basically Evo does nothing more than sort of talk his way through it. It's, it's like the Mark Knopfler approach to to to, um, to singing, but without the tunefulness. So, you know, you're not buying it for the vocal performance. It's badly produced, which doesn't help it. But actually, the music that sits behind it is all right. It's all right. But it is. It's theatre. I think you're right, Steve. I think that's, that's exactly how you have to look at it, really. So, Baron Frankenstein, there is now a, a couple of instrumental interludes. One uh, is Velvet Rhapsody and the other is Solo Shadows, which provide a bit of respite from Evo's vocals. If we're being absolutely honest about it, and these boys could play instruments, there's no doubt about that. And these are quite nice pieces of music. A bit of keyboards going on, some nice little atmospheric rain in the background. It's you know, it's it's all right. It's all right. It's perfectly pleasant. A bit of Downton Abbey in there. We well, talk about you talk about rain. I think I mean Guns and Roses November rain ripped this off, and they they could certainly write a melody and. Um, yeah, I mean, Velvet Rhapsody goes into this solo of Shadows, which, again, you've got that sort of 90s pop, 80s, 90s pop, haven't you? Again, I, I, th- I thought there was echoes of OMD and, and things like that in, uh, in yeah. Solo of Shadows. This was the point that I referred to or deferred to YouTube to see, well, see what I wasn't getting. And I stuck on their previous album, A Conflict of Hatred, which I don't know whether you know, just to get a sense of, you know what? I what I wasn't understanding. You know, is this normal? Is this normal for um for warfare? And there's some great stuff on there. Play to your strengths. Just just give me another one of those albums, and I'd be quite happy. I thought it was quite good. I honestly thought it was quite good. Um, a solo of shadows uh, gives way to Evo's, I suppose, lament, homage, whatever it is to Count Dracula, where he sounds a bit like he's working for the Whitby Tourist Board, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. So Prince of Darkness is um, punk, punky? Yeah, it's a bit punky, new wavy. I, it, it's a bit basic. I, I found, whilst, yeah, the, the, the guitars are back and everything, I by now I quite got into the mood of the rest of the album. <laughs> They're not being particularly creative here, are they? No. No. That's really interesting. You say it's a bit basic. Maybe that's why it appeals to me more than anything else that's gone before, because I really like this. <laughs> I'm fed up with what's gone before. This is... I had this as Bauhaus meeting Motorhead. I thought it was, um, I, I really like this. I think there's more here, musically. Yeah, there's a bit of joy division in it as well. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear this without his vocals, with a different singer. I mean, I'm beginning to sound like a slap record and I just need to shut up, but this could be quite a good track. There's a decent track hidden away in there somewhere. And it's a lovely punk, punky riff as well, bassy and distorted. And uh, the sax is back for tales of the gothic genre, 
which I think is a little highlight, actually. It's a little gem tucked away towards the end of this album. Uh, the, the, the chorus is very punky, very sort of stiff little fingers, actually, I thought. But, you know, there's sax going on. There's loads of different stuff going on on this, just on this track, never mind the rest of the album, which is, you know, kind of diverse and varied in its own right. But I quite like Tales of the Gothic genre. Yeah, you know, I really channeling his inner Johnny Rotten on this one on the vocals, isn't it? Steve's had enough of it by now, I think. No, no, I quite, like, I, I quite like this track. Gary Lindsley on sax, previously head of saxophone studies at Newcastle University. I don't know how he got involved in this, but there you go. Well, he, didn't the, he didn't do it for the money, clearly. <laughs> yeah, and there's some quite good noise in this. I, uh, yeah, I, I think the album's picked up, definitely, previous track in this one. I like that rolling back line that the sax plays over. I think it's um, Jerry Rafferty meets Venom. So, see, I'm telling you, boys, this is the most interesting album we've listened to for a long time because we've got all of these got all of these influences going on, and the two of you are finding it really hard to be absolutely critical of it, aren't you? You quite like it, I think. It's interesting how Steve and I have come at this because he's saying it's picking up towards the end. For me, it fades out because these last, uh, particularly the, the um, Prince of Darkness and this one, are more regular records, I suppose. What are you saying? That, that I've been duped into uh, into into enjoying the, uh, whatever you call it, the, <laughs> the, the cabaret, yeah. the favourite half of this album. Don't even try. <laughs> I'll mark entirely responsible. So, um, <laughs> so a little odyssey through the Hammer Studios ends with Scream of the Vampire. Um, and again, it's got a nice little rolling riff going through it. Like I said, it's very hard for me to be you know, critical of it beyond accepting that lots of people will hate this album. You know, I, absolutely, I absolutely understand that. I completely understand why. But like I say, this album is my guilty pleasure. It really is my guilty pleasure. This sounds like something out of Bad Manners, or Selector or something, a bit two-tone. Yeah, there is a bit of that about it, isn't there? Yeah. It's also not very good. Well, it's, an, it's an interesting ending because, again, they've tried to throw everything in this. Yeah. And it really is just a bit of a mess. Yeah. Um, the speaking, the different uh, riffs, the the stop, the start, the screams. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm with the vampire on this. I'm screaming too. Okay, boys. Let's uh, let's put us out of our misery. Highs and lows. Steve, let's start with you. Okay. So my – Jesus, it's just so difficult to weigh these things up. It really is. I'll stick with my original thought process. My low is Phantom of the Opera. And of those two tracks at the back end, I think I'd probably give it to Prince of Darkness is my, uh, is my highlight. Okay. Richard? Taking this album the way it was intended to be as a good romp through this genre – I'll give a low to, I think, to Tales of the Gothic genre because it's just far too like a normal song. Well, I, I, I love the, I really do like the melody on the Velvet Rhapsody solo of Shadows, but I, so I suppose that's up there, probably together with Baron Frankenstein because um, I think that their combination of big power riffs with uh, orchestral strings could have been a groundbreaker. Okay, and uh, well, my low is actually the opening first proper song, which is uh, Plague of the Zombies, uh, and my high is the song that kind of hooked me right at the beginning, which is 
um, Phantom of the Opera. So um, there you go. That is Warfare's Hammer Horror. You never have to listen to it again, which is probably a blessed relief to Steve, certainly. But that is now album number two of this concept album episode, episode 33 of the Enter Sad Men podcast. And it brings us to the 99th album that we have reviewed. And Jesus Christ, Steve, what did you do to us? Do you want to talk through Fear Factory's demanufacture? Opening album sleeve notes. From the ridiculous to the sublime, my friend. I think that's what we can say now, isn't it? Um, this, I think this puts the tin lid on the um, on the episode of all episodes. I'm absolutely, I'm really interested to know what you two boys made of this. I'm going to quickly rattle through the facts about Fear Factory's Demanufacture, which is either their second, their third, or their fourth album, depending on how you count these things. And it's really not a very interesting story, so I'm not going to bore you with it. The band are Burton C. Bell on vocals, more of whom later. Dino Cazares on guitars and bass. Um, and they did um, employ another bassist later called Christian Volbers, Christian Volbers, um, and there's kind of mixed messages as to whether he contributed anything to any of the tracks, but he was basically employed because they had to go on the road, and as good a musician as Dino Cazares is, he clearly couldn't play guitar and bass on the same night, so they got Christian Volber. Um, so the third um, or fourth member of the band is a man who we will talk much more about later, a guy called Raymond Herrera on drums. This was released two days after my 30th birthday um, in 1995, recorded in late 94 on Roadrunner Records, 55 minutes long. The producer initially, well, the producer was a guy called Colin Richardson, um, an Englishman. Um, they started, well, they were going to go and record it at a place called Trax Studios in Chicago. But according to Bell, it was a shithole. So they upped and moved to Bearsville Studios in Woodstock, uh, New York State. And they were there at the same time as them at Bearsville in the studio were Faith No More and Bon Jovi. And I wonder if you can guess who they hung out with on most nights. Colin Richardson is an Englishman and he had been the producer on their previous album or albums, depending on, as I say, how you tally them up. And the vocals were finished at Whitfield Studios in London. And the reason they had they they ran out of time and they ran out of money, basically, at Bearsville. And the reason that happened is because Richardson and Kazaras had locked horns over the guitar sound. That's what happened. There was a massive fallout. And being the artists that they are, they just dug their heels in the pair of them and nothing got done for a few days. But Kazaras won out, it was his band and the roadrunner said yeah. So Richardson was out the door and they brought in a guy called Reese Fulber and Greg Reilly um, to do the mixes, and that's exactly what they wanted to happen. You could cl- you could clearly see because these bar- these guys were sort of you know um, that they loved the tech and the and the computers and the and the programming, and this is where the band wanted to go. So that they they were delighted to have Fulber and Reilly on board. Highest it, it made it got to number twenty seven on the UK chart, went gold in Australia, silver in the UK. It's 11 tracks long, and it should only be 10, and we'll come to that later. The reason I ask is I'm, I'm so curious to know what you thought, because, yeah, when I first suggested it, and I gave us what you said, that WhatsApp message that you gave me, Mark, was, you know, what have you done, man? And I know full well, I know full well, that if, I'd have been, if we'd have been sat in the car in, back in 95 or 96, I didn't get this album first. I got the one after it, obsolete first, and then bought this one afterwards. If I'd have put this on in the car, you'd have played it once, said, yeah, whatever, that's shit, or it's not shit, and you'd never have played it again. This week, of course, what sounds like a wall of noise, 
you've got to explore it and you've had to listen to it. And I'm so fascinated to know what you make of what you would have thought. And I'm kind of second guessing you, but I think I'm presuming right. What you would have thought was crap or a wall of noise 25 years ago. Now you've had to study it. So I'm, I'm so curious to know what you thought. When you picked it, I thought, oh my good Christ, what the fuck has he done? And if you were to draw my listening experience over the last week as a graph, it would go from hatred, it would come up as I kind of listened to it more. And then towards the end of the week, it goes all the way back down again. And we'll come on to why in a minute. So I struggled. I, I'll be absolutely honest with you. I got through the first list and I thought, I'm not fucking listening to that again. And of course, I, I knew I was going to have to listen to it again because that's the that's the deal we had. But I would have got, I would have quite happily at that point just gone no, that is absolutely not for me. Thank you very much. I'm done with that album. Um, I'm glad I persevered because there are there are parts of it that I really like. We are going to talk about Raymond Herrera. I've got a feeling that two thirds of the people involved in this podcast are probably quite admiring of him. Uh, one third of it just just well. We'll come on to it. I think it's interesting that you think the last track is going to be the problem track for the scoring, because for me, it's anything but. So the big question is, would I listen to this album again? And I think in all honesty, the answer is no, I probably would. Have I hated it? Absolutely not. Do I think that, they're, that they are musically very, very accomplished or technically, technologically highly, highly accomplished? Absolutely. I really struggle with the vocal vocal and I really struggle with the drums but we'll come on to that I didn't hate it that's that's the key take how have I found it like all of all of these episodes and particularly this week uh, an adventure I would put one or two of them onto playlists the tracks uh, playlists of a certain style there will be a couple of tracks that I'm quite happy if I never hear again in my life but as an album and um, thank you again to both of you for your two, this is the most enjoyable adventure of my life doing these podcasts. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would echo that because, because yet again, I've been forced to confront my own prejudices and preconceptions and open my mind and my ears. And that's always a good thing. And, um, you know, I hate it when you two are, you know, so bloody lofty and open minded about stuff because I, I realize that I am actually. Yeah, very close-minded in, in, in all sorts of ways. And, and, um, and weeks like this force me to, to to use my ears in a different way, and that's really good. I'll tell you now, none of these are going to make a Spotify playlist that I've got, I can promise you. But, yeah, there are a couple that – it's been a really, really interesting list in this album. Yeah. I'm trying to second-guess the Naptime playlist that goes, look what the cat dragged in, piss Christ, and more than a feeling. I mean, that's going to be <laughs> – what a segue. Tremendous. <laughs> it is true what, what you both said. There is absolutely no respite in this. There's an awful lot of intricacy and little things and plenty to admire musically, technically. There's a hell of a lot to admire. But, yeah, there's no reprieve from the, from the aural assault. And this is a band that, you know, in the thrash genre, they're, they're deemed as very important. They're deemed not quite as ahead of their time because they come from a that kind of industrial metal genre that we've heard from before. And incidentally, Mark, I would say the same. I love this album to bits. And I would say the same about an album like um, Psalm 69 by Ministry, which is pretty much of the same kind of feel, but was three years earlier. It's that sort of music, and that's where music was going. And I love that album to bits as well. I know this is probably slightly more brutal. Well, there's no slightly about it. This is more brutal. But 
What am I saying? It's completely fucking brutal. But I think there's, there's, there's so much good in here. And just before, you know, we start going through it track by track, Metal Hammer, yeah, got no time for Metal Hammer, but they did say that this band is so far ahead of its time that bands are still failing to rip it off convincingly today. And that's so true. You know, there's an awful lot of bad thrash out there from bands who reckon they were inspired by Fear Factory and they've not got a patch on them. And, and they've got the technology these days that these boys didn't have 25 years ago. And I think the sound they produce is brilliant. Really, really well produced piece of work. So, yeah, as I say, 11 tracks. Um, the, the album opens with the title track, Demanufactured. Let's deal with the concept bit, first of all. Depends on who you listen to. It's either about the breakdown of Los Angeles because they lived during the riots. They're from LA and they lived during the riots. Or if you look on Wikipedia, it's to do with struggles against the machine-controlled government, a rage against the machine. I don't know. It's, it's hardly the lamb lies down on Broadway, is it? So that's the concept, which is pretty spurious. There's nothing spurious about the opening track, just the manufacture. The opening riff of the title track was voted 19th in total guitars lists of the heaviest riffs of all time. And that's what it is. It's a real Pantera feel, brutal stop start guitar riff, pure power, awesome start, clean, brutal, brilliant. What do you think? Yeah, well, yeah, it's explosive, isn't it? I've, I've got Pantera meets Anthrax. And yeah, not only you've got that guitar riff, but this, well, yeah, well let's, let's talk about Herrera. Um, his drumming, he, 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 he takes bass drum pedal work to another level on this and uses it. I mean, it's almost another guitar. I've never heard it used like this. Well, should we get out of the way? I mean, lots of issues around, is it a drum machine? There are videos, it's not. Um, he's he, he is actually probably triggering a sound off of the bass pedal because no one can make a, hit, hit drums that quickly with their feet and make it sound consistent. But yeah, amazing. Raymond Herrera co-wrote all of the songs on this album and don't we know it because everything else is drowned out by his drums. So I don't know, and this is a, I mean, it's a genuine question. I'm not just being mischievous or facetious. I'm I don't understand the point of the vocals because I can't hear. I can basically I can make out. I've got no goddamn regrets and I've got no goddamn respect, and that's it. And this is the issue I have with the vocals. I can't. I have no idea what this song's about. <laughs> I was I I looked it up on Genius Lyrics and I was following it. And it just seems like a, it's like you've put 15 monkeys in a room and they've come up with the lyrics to this song and then they've got a baboon to sing it. I just don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. As a, as a piece of music, I think it's absolutely fine. But put the vocals on it and that's, that's the point. It loses me. That's really interesting. Well, I disagree. Um, we're moving on to um, self-bias resistor where you will hear two sides of, of, of Burton Bell's vocals. Um, and you'll hear it on many tracks through this. He's a he, he is a growler, Mark. You, you you know what you're getting. You're not getting Andrea Bocelli. You know that. You you know what you're getting with this man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is he is he wanting you to read the lyrics or understand? Probably not. I, I, and and we never do with these kind of vocalists. We know what they do. We know what they are. It's all part of the noise. It is part of what they do. If you don't get it, that's fine. Um, but don't expect to understand the lyrics. They're not there. No. No, and I absolutely agree with you. And this album was not written for me. So, you know, we need to we need to put that out front and centre. I'm never going to buy this album. It's not the this sort of sub-genre that interests me, and it really doesn't. What I would, what, what I would say is that if, if Ronnie James Dio sings this, 
I keep picking on Ronnie Joe. If, if David Coverdale sings this, if, if Bruce Dickinson sings this, it doesn't work. Burton Bell has to sing this. Yeah, the vocal is absolutely right for the music. And and so I, I, I completely get that. But there are moments on this album where you hear him and he can sing. Mm-hmm. And you think, actually, which bring will eventually bring us to the last track, <laughs> which I think is an interesting conversation. But he, I mean, even on Self-Biased Resistor, when he... He's sending out those long, the long drawn out notes. I think it works really well. So yeah, Steve, fine. This is the style, but actually, they could have done more with his voice. Uh, actually, singing properly. This this track, Self Bass Resistor. This would be one of the ones I would put on a playlist. I mean, obviously, you've got the, the machine gun riff again, but it, 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 there's some really lovely parts to it. They break it up. It's not all samey, growly, machine gun all the way through. For your information, Raymond Herrera, among his many guises, um, he's, all, he's now a natural products broker with his wife in Santa Maria, California. So should you need any natural products, you know who to go to. Um, Zero Signal is track three. Um, according to Bell, he wrote it in London, waking up from an acid trip. And yeah, I get that. I get that. It's, uh, that's Zero Signal. Again, maximum voltage at the start, um, some really clever synths, early doors, in tandem with yet more yeah, just outrageous drumming. And then we're into the beef of a riff, and it's just so, so heavy. Oh, great song. The, the first four songs on this album are my – well, the, the, my favourite track is further down, but this block of four tracks at the start is just mind-blowing for me. Yeah, I like the layers in this – the, the atmospheric keyboards, you know, being played on top of a freight train. I mean, yeah, massive, massive power. Like Mark, I do struggle with this style of singing. Ramstein have shown that you don't have to sing like this over this style of, of, of metal. That The singing aside, um, there's some yeah, very interesting bits and pieces to this song. Um, there is a brilliant riff under this, but it's all drowned out by those fucking drums. I cannot hear it. It's just... Um, you know, I said to you, the, the drums just bore me on this album. That, that's the bell curve. The bell curve is, don't like it, don't like it. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's more interesting. Yeah, oh, okay. I'm actually sort of quite enjoying it now. And then we get to a point by sort of day before yesterday where I'm just thinking, I, I literally cannot hear anything except those fucking drums. And I, I can't bear it. It just... They lose me, but there's a the, the the guitars on this album throughout the album are absolutely awesome. Mm. But I can't I can't get I can't deal with these. You know the the, the drums dominate everything. Oh, I don't know. I just I, you know I could sit and wax lyrical about this all night. And this, this zero zero signal boasts a really kind of cool Pearl Jam outro as well. It's it's like listening to Black cranked up to about a zillion. It's um. It's fantastic because they do have light and shade. You don't hear much. You don't get a lot of it. But when you do get it, it's it's noticeable. But th- then we're back in a Pantera territory at the start of Replica, which is track four, which is the first single off the album. Suffice to say, I didn't see them perform it on top of the pops, but and I have no idea how it did. The Pantera influence is probably not a massive surprise because Kazara's had, according to Bell, and they were flatmates once upon a time, Kazara's had memorized Cowboys from Hell because he wanted to be able to pick like Dimebag Daryl and you can hear and you can hear that kind of influence what well, you can hear it hugely in 
this album, I think. Yeah, yeah, this is this, this is absolutely it's Pantera, and um, I, I quite like this actually. Um, it's, it's slightly more melodic, which is probably why I like it a bit more. I think it's another great riff. Apparently, they they claim that the video was banned by MTV because it was pro-choice because it's all about abortion and birth and being born out of hatred and all the rest of it. And yeah, so apparently the band say MTV wouldn't play it because it was pro-choice. I think MTV didn't play it because it was probably to alienate an entire section of their audience. But, but that's a different conversation. Great bridge, great. I, I really like the chorus. I've got no problem at all with this out, this track. It's great. Yeah, it's one of my favourites. Rich? Yes, I like it. It, it, I love the ringing chords in it, as well as the, the, the again, the machine gun uh, riffs. And he brings probably, what, three or four different musical styles, and even the growling has got some notes to it. So, yeah, be- better, better from him on this one. Yeah, I agree. That, I mean, I think there's some quite, and don't laugh at me, I think there's some quite haunting choral work when, um, in, in the, when the duet with the chant I don't want to live that way. I, I, I think we're seeing we're seeing so many illustrations. Stop shaking your head. We're seeing so many illustrations and examples of their musicality. <laughs> I'm only shaking my head because I don't think we've got to the best choral work on this album. Okay. Well, I'm, I, I shall take a punt that it's not New Breed, which is track five, which uh, this is off to a new level of, of mad scientists do heavy metal. As far as I'm concerned, I mean this. This is oh shit. This is fiery. This is this is this is kind of close to out of control. Probably, I'm mean, almost a bit too nuts for me. I don't dislike it, but when I first heard this, and uh, and again and again and again, I I thought actually this is Ramstein. Take his voice out completely from the beginning. It's so so Ramstein, and and I could imagine a different vocal over the top of it. And I would say that Mark would love it. His vocal, that growly vocal style, I mean, he's he really just shouting hell in this song. And if you don't like that vocal style, that is just going to completely ruin it. But, I mean, this, you know, the, 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 the keyboardy synth bit in the middle and then the riff comes back in. I mean, that's classic, classic Ramstein. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think if if there's if there's a if there's one criticism of this band and I, I've I've only got one, <laughs> it's that some of the riffs do sound a bit samey after a while. <laughs> am I am I speaking so obviously that yeah, which is fine if you like that riff. But yeah, no, occasionally they change it. They, they do change it up. And this is well, this is a cover. This is Dog Day Sun. Um, Dog Day Sunrise is track six, which is why I've got a problem with the concept album. How can you, how can you have, how can you have a fucking cover version. I can never cover song in a concept. It's, it's your concept or someone's, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe someone else butting in. Do you know this song, Richard? No, I don't. I didn't know it was a cover. Who's it? No, and, and I know you'd love it. It's a band called Heads of David, and I didn't know. And check it out. I think it's right up your street. Yeah, no, I like this. It's very faithful to the Head of David version, I think. Yeah. They don't do much different with it. And right. So I'm quite conflicted because it's the most melodic thing on the album, so therefore it's more accessible for me. But at the same time, how many times have we criticised cover versions because they've just not done anything with them? Yeah, my first two words on my notes 
uh, under this track are and breathe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I've got. I'm hearing Joy Division. I'm hearing. I'm hearing some Cult. Um, the uh, the rhythm is almost teardrop explodes reward and I, yeah pre- as you predicted I really like this yeah. as a, I really like it yeah no and, and you'd like the original too incredibly unbelievably this actually charted it reached says a lot about says a lot about the mainstream music scene in the mid nineties <laughs> it reached the dizzy heights of number seventy five in the UK charts and I did check. And I did check, and it was there, right next door to, um, oh, I don't know, Oasis with cigarettes and alcohol or something. I mean, bizarre, but yeah, people were buying this stuff in single form. And side, so, so that ends side one. That ends side one on a really good note. Um, and side two then kicks off with Body Hammer, which is, oh, it's, it's a brilliant opening. Picks up, uh, well, picks up slow. I was going to say slowly, relatively slowly, um, against an absolutely grinding riff. And then I have to say, and I'm, and I'm wary of criticising, but Bell hits us with, even by his standards, one of his more out-of-tune lyrics when he sings, say sings, when he shouts, I clench my teeth and realise, you know, yeah. I love that jackhammer going on. Ah, oh, that's musically again, fantastic. I absolutely love the riff on this. I, I like this. I like this track. like it a lot. This does less for me. So the, if you call it a chorus or a bridge, whatever it is, I find it's a bit messy rhythmically. And Crumbs, it's aptly titled, isn't it? I mean, I, I really <laughs> absolutely hammered by this. So after the respite of uh, Dog Day Sunrise, they're back at you. This, in in vinyl form, of course, this was the start of side two. So you you had a bit of a you had a bit of a reprieve. Um, I don't like it as much as, say, the opener or, or replica or a couple of others to come. But, yeah, no, it's all good stuff. Um, and it's followed by Flashpoint. And at the start, you're just thinking, ah, the ballad, the ballad. But, nah, they don't do them. This is mid-paced. I've, I've got a four-word review for this one. <laughs> uh, it reads, um, nope, just a noise. <laughs> I like the bass riff. Bass riff's good. But the combination of uh, Bell's voice again and uh, who, which bright sparks idea was to put that screeching on it. Uh, that, that sort of almost is like, I don't know, what is it? Like almost, almost train wheels on a track kind of screeching is, uh, no, just um, uh, that, uh, that this uh, points when that came in, I was thinking, right, no, I'm going I'm to skip this one because my ears are hurting there. I love I love the start of this. That sort of punky drum beat and and the bass line sings along with it, and the guitars crash in, and and then as you say, when it reaches that crescendo, and it, it just backs off, and then it just goes unbelievably nuts. And so to HK Hunter Killer, and what a meanie this is. Now I really do like this bit of spoken word across a kind of menacing synth, um, which continues when the guitar and the drums kick in, and then you just get a really brutal what bounce along but there's so much more to it than that i i i, I think it's I, that malevolent backing sin through this is just such a great backdrop i think it's a fantastic track really really fantastic track i just i, I think i just found it hugely repetitive i think I, I, 
and it, and it's for me again. Come back to Herrera's drums. I just it's just relentless. There's no space after the start. No space in it at all. And maybe that's the point. You know, I, I get that. I get that, and I get why people like this a lot. You know, it's um, but it's not me. It's, I, there's some nice, actually, some nice melody in this song, but there is just no room to breathe in it at all. Is the synth not helping you along there? No. I felt this was a bit anthraxy, uh, sort of the stop-start speed. I mean, the drums are incredible. I, I get what you're saying, Mark. As I said earlier, I, I absolutely respect his drumming. It's an, it, it is incredible. But it's not my style, not drumming I massively enjoy listening to, but I'm in awe of what he's able to do with his four limbs. I think the, the point about HK Hunter Killer, I'm, just, I'm getting more of a song. I'm getting shape and structure that maybe uh, you're just looking at me perplexed. <laughs> Whatever it is you're hearing, it's not going in my ears. <laughs> Listen, when this when when this when this madness is over and we're out of lockdown, we'll share a glass over enough's enough. That'll be for old time's sake. <laughs> and from HK Hunter Killer, we move to Piss Christ, which and the hammer is back. The industrial hammer is back. And another really intense track. Like I need to say it. This track has got the best ending of all the of all the tracks on this album. There's an absolutely sensational ending. A really, really it's almost and again, don't mock me, it's almost beautiful with Bell's incantation of Where's Your Saviour Now? Um, recited over and over and over again. Because it's such a brilliant lyric and it's brilliantly written and it's brilliantly um delivered, it would have been a fitting amen to the album. Personally, I think it would have been, I think this track is the perfect farewell to this album, but alas, it ain't. Uh, by this stage, it's all sounding a bit samey. I disagree with you, Steve. I'm glad they stuck something different on the end. There wasn't sufficient difference between the the tracks. So that's kind of where I was. Well, and that's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, for me, yes. It's a fantastic outro, lyrically. And yes, from a from a, a lyrical point of view, that would have been a perfect end to the album, lyrically. I agree with Richard. I'm glad there's something else at the end. And what comes at the end, which just demonstrates again how far apart you and I are on this particular album, the next track for me is the track of the album. See, that's really extraordinary. So, well, let's do it then. So Piss Christ does segue into Therapy for Pain. Because it is the same, it's the same piece of music that starts it off. And your great dread, well, mine anyway, was that you look at the listing and you see nine forty-three, and there's just one word that's immediately just comes to mind straight away. And you know what it is? It's disgustipated. That's that's what I'm fearing. That's and I'm thinking, have they thrown it all away? Funny enough, I remember years ago thinking, I, I can't, I can't remember whether I like this or not, or even listen to it. And I dare say it wraps up the story they're trying to tell, whatever it is. I just, I just think it drones for sort of the first five and a half minutes and then actually manages to go downhill from there. So I'm sure it means something to the band. Clearly it means something to you two more than perhaps what's gone before, but um, I think it's unnecessary. I'd, I'd have said the same, I think I'd have said the same 25 years ago, but don't hold me to that. <laughs> I love the way they reprise the melody from Piss Christ. I think that's really clever and really effective because it's almost it's almost choral. It's, it's almost like a monkish chant. 
actually. It's almost Gregorian, which I love. I really, really like the way they've they've done this. And I think it's such a stark counterpoint to the rest of the album that it's really, really, really effective. So, yeah, I absolutely love this track. I think that I said I wouldn't put a, a song on a Spotify playlist. I, I would put this on a Spotify okay. playlist. I didn't get bored at all. At 9.45, I could have gone on listening to it for another, you know, three, four, five minutes. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. There you go. That's Demanufacture by Fear Factory, a band that challenged itself and, and pushed boundaries and I think did it quite successfully with this. And the, the story... The concept, if it does continue, if, if there is one, it does continue with obsolete, but luckily that's outside our time scale, so you're never going to hear that on this show. <laughs> Highs and lows. Well, first of all, let me say that I think for all the fact that I you know, really struggled with the album, I don't think there's any doubting the fact that, that musically and technologically they are extraordinarily gifted people, them and their, you know, the people responsible for producing it. So, you know, my highs and lows are in the context of I appreciate, I admire what they can do, even if I don't particularly get on with it. But my um, my high is uh, a therapy for pain. I thought it was just brilliant track. Um, my low was Flashpoint. My four my four, four word review stands. Nope, just a noise. <laughs> okay, I was going to say damned by faint praise, but there's no faint praise with that one, was there? So. Uh... Rich, where are you? Similarly, as Mark for Lowe's Flashpoint is was just um, too painful for my ears. And I mean, I've got three, three I've given the same mark for at the top, which are the three I would put on various playlists, So, which are Therapy for Pain and uh, Dog Day Sunrise and, amazingly, uh, Self-Bias Resistor. Well, I think I've made it clear I'm not overly bothered by the therapy for pain, which is fine. Um, I've got several sort of up on the sort of eight and a half range. And I think while I love that bread basket at the top, demanufacture, self-bias resistor, zero signal, and especially replica, I'm going to give it to HK, Hunter Killer for me. So there you have it, an eclectic night. If ever there was a an episode that earned the word eclectic, I think that's got it. And... Um, so now we take the great pleasure, well, I'm presuming it's a pleasure, the great challenge of scoring these bastards. And, um, yeah, rejoin us in a bit, and uh, we'll see how they get on. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so there you go. That's um, three albums on our concept special for your delectation. Um, we've listened to them. Uh, well, we spent a week listening to them. Um, and we've now reviewed them and scored them. So uh, let's talk through the numbers on the board. Richard, you brought Keeper of the Seven Keys, part one, to the party. How did we all score it? Yeah, we were fairly consistent, actually, uh, in the end. Uh, differences across the tracks. Uh, but at the end of the day, Steve, you gave it a dead seven. And Mark and I were equal, giving it a 7.16 recurring. And uh, that gave it an overall total between the three of us of a 7.1 recurring. How about Hammer Horror, Mark? Well, Hammer Horror inevitably was kind of saved a bit by me um, because, as I said, when we were talking about it, it is my guilty pleasure. So, um, Steve, you gave it a 5.9, which, if I'm being honest, is 
higher than I thought you were going to give it. Richard, you gave it a 6.3, which is also higher than I thought it might be from you. I gave it a 7.1-ish, um, which I think actually is a, is quite a circumspect score for me, um, given given I could have just gone fanboy on it. Um, so that gives it an overall average of 6.43 recurring. Uh, Steve, de-manufacture. Mm. I'm talking of people who um, exceeded expectations on a scoring front. Brings me to you and this album. Given that you didn't like it that much, you actually gave it a score of 6.54, um, which is, yeah, more than I thought you would. Richard, you gave it a score of 7.04. I gave it 7.4, knowing full well that if the last track's on it, it's near a, near a eight. But anyway, there you go. Bizarrely, given the mass of numbers that our three scores have reached, the overall album score is seven dead. Um, so there you go. All the scores are done. And now we better find out where they are in the Hall of Fame. And bear in mind that these are album numbers. Why are we? 97, 98, 99. We're in touching distance of the Magical 100. So uh, for one week at least, Warfare's Hammer Horror will be in the top 100. <laughs> it's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. To be honest with you, I think you might find it's going to be longer than a week. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I was fully expecting Hammer Horror to be propping up the Hall of Fame this week, but they're not. So uh, in reverse order, in terms of where they got in, um, Warfare enter the uh, Hall of Fame at number 92 between Uriah Heap's Look at Yourself and Gravedigger's War Games, Uriah Heap being above, Gravedigger being below. Uh, we then move up to uh, number 80 on the list, which is where Fear Factory have popped in with Demanufacture, um, sandwiched between Paranoid and Long Cold Winter, um, so Black Sabbath and Cinderella, respectively. And then uh, entering at the highest position for this week was... Halloween's Keeper of the Seven Keys Part 1, which came in at 73. And it's all getting a bit crowded around that 7, 7.1, 7.2. A bit congested, isn't it? It is, yeah. How would Ingve feel? Two below warfare. <laughs> <laughs> Priceless. Yeah, no, they're all uh, they're all they're all packed in there, aren't they? If you're uh, if you're if you're a soups on short of seven these days, you're uh, you, you're going to vanish off this league table very sharpish, aren't you? Once we get through the barrier, yeah, I think so. Yeah, these are all in what the the pretty much the well, the, well, the bottom thirty of of our of our ninety nine. But it's been uh, an absolutely fun fun week. Uh, I can't wait to see what uh, Tico's Tombola throws out next time. Well, please, God, it's something a bit more mainstream than what we've done this week. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. That's another episode of Entertainment, uh done and dusted. Um, we'll be back next time with another three albums based on the slightly erratic and perhaps uh, mad Tico Torres and his tombolas of tombola of topics and themes. But uh, until then, thanks very much, your company. We'll see you next time.
All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.